Let's ask God to help us. Father, we are grateful. We are always grateful for these days in our weeks where we can come together and rest in you. We come to you battle-worn, weary, and we need refreshment from you, O God, today. And we pray that as the word is preached now and as the word is sung later and preached again, and as we have fellowship with each other, that you would use that as your means to energize us for your kingdom. Be glorified in this hour and the rest of the day. In Christ's name, amen. Conflict. Conflict is one of the things that you can expect when you are part of a local church. Sad to say that, but it's a reality. That's the reality of being part of a local church. Why is it the case that you can expect conflict if you're part of a local church? It's because although church members are a local group of believers, church members are also a local group of sinners. We're not sinners by identity. We're saints, remember, by identity. But we are sinners in that we still continue to struggle with our sin. Even though we're redeemed and even though we are born again, we still have this flesh that remains and with which we will struggle until the Lord returns or calls us home. The local church is a collection of people like that. Saved sinners. That famous Martin Luther saying in Latin, I don't know how to pronounce it in Latin, so I'll just pronounce it in Texan. Simul justus et peccator. Right? Simultaneously justified and sinner. And under such conditions, if you gather people like that who are simultaneously justified and sinners, then you can be sure that if you're part of a local church for more than two minutes, you're going to have conflict. Now, what do you suppose is the most popular way to deal with conflict? Run from it. Run from it. Not many people relish confrontation. I get that. I can, I can, I can relate to that. So instead of addressing the issues, they bury their issues that they have with other people or they talk about them with the wrong people. And then eventually after they stack up a list of grievances, they write a letter to the pastors and leave. Friends, we live in a culture where leaving is easy. Don't like the haircut you got? There's a million salons in Las Vegas. You're dissatisfied with a, with a school that your kids are in? No problem. You have options. Don't like the service that you got at the bank? Well, no problem, because I can just take my business somewhere else. The problem is that the people treat the local church that way. It's a consumerist mindset. I'm here to get what I want, and if I don't get what I want, then I'm leaving. It happens all the time, and it's wrong. It's wrong. That's not the way that Christ, the head of the church, wants us to deal with conflict. So what should you do when you have issues in your church? Again, just like my sermon yesterday, I botched the title on this sermon as well because it says, what should you do if 
you have problems in your church or issues in your church, but it really should say when. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't see Becky or Jean in here. Great, I just call them out on recording on a sermon. But the reason why I bring up Becky and Jean is that they have been members of this church for 32 years. They know that when it comes to issues in the local church, that it's not a matter of if, but when. So what should you do when you have issues in your church? That is what we're going to try to tackle in this hour. There are three major things that you're called to do when you have issues in your church. Three major categories that we're going to look at today. First, recognize that you are under your church's authority. Second, follow Christ's process for unity. And third, get outside help if that process fails. So let's take a look at each of these one at a time. Number one, recognize that you are under your church's authority. Recognize that you're under your church's authority. Paragraph 12 of chapter 26 of of our confession, if you have a one of those handouts from Reformation Conference, you can read along on paragraph 12. It says, As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity to do so, so all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. So, the confession has now already established that members, uh, I'm sorry, that believers in Jesus Christ are meant to join local churches, if at all possible. And knowing that being part of a local church gives you much privilege, it gives you great benefit if you're a believer. Now we add in this paragraph that with that privilege comes responsibility. And that responsibility that we're talking about is being under the censures and government of the church. In other words, as believers, when we join ourselves to a local church, we are putting ourselves under the discipline and authority of that local church. And that's not optional. It's Jesus' instructions for us. Now, you don't need to turn to this passage but because we, we, we looked at it uh, yesterday in my, in my previous sermon, but let's quickly review a passage 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. You'll remember that there, Paul encourages us to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. And in that session titled, What Are Church Members?, we concluded that church members are those believers who hold themselves, or rather, hold each other accountable. We, we said that that was a responsibility. Church members hold each other accountable. And with that responsibility comes authority. If you admonish somebody in love because he's being idle in his walk, and he says to you, by whose authority are you speaking this way to me? You can confidently answer, by the authority of Christ, the head of the church. That'd be a weird conversation to have. It'd be great. But in giving, in giving you the command to hold others accountable, he has also given you the authority to do so in his name. So that's 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 
do turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3.6. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. In Paul's closing comments of this shorter letter, he turns to the subject of idleness. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with a tradition that you received from us. We see the word brothers there. And just like yesterday, when we see the word brothers in this context, he's talking about the whole church, not just the elders, not just the pastors. He's talking to the whole church, and he appeals to the authority of Christ by saying, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 6. Because as an apostle, he's writing with the authority of Christ. He's able to actually, look at the word he uses in verse 6, command them. And he commands these brothers in Thessalonica to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Keep away from them. If you read the whole passage, you, you kind of understand that the problem that he's addressing is that there are Christians in the church who were refusing to work. And the reason why they were probably refusing to work was because they had a misunderstanding of Christ's second coming. They gathered, hey, if Christ can come at any time, why go back to our jobs? But that's not what Christ taught us to do. And that's not what the apostles taught either. Someone walking in idleness, Paul writes, was not in accord with the tradition that they received from the apostles. Now, Christ taught, and therefore the apostles taught, that since he could come at any time, everyone should be busy. Everyone should stay busy. The apostles, in, in teaching what Christ taught, taught this kind of diligence, and, and they led by example in this. So he calls the church to thus keep away from such a brother. Notice that word brother. Realize that Paul is still willing to call such a person, an idle person, a brother. And that's, that's the right attitude. That's the right attitude. There are some who are quick to see a Christian in some theological error or sin and just quickly write off that person and condemn them. Delete all of their sermons. I'm never listening to that guy again. And that's not what Paul does here. He still calls them brothers. But he does tell the church, keep away from that brother. Keep away from such a brother. This is actually pretty common language that Paul uses. Elsewhere in his writings, he tells the church to avoid Romans 16, those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Avoid those people. And those who, 2 Timothy 3.5, have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power, avoid them. He tells the church to not associate with sexually immoral Christians in 1 Corinthians 5.9-13. And he's emphatic that he's talking about Christians. He's saying otherwise you'd have to just leave the world, right? But don't associate with at least people who are calling themselves Christians who are sexually immoral. And he tells them to have nothing to do with a person, Titus 3.10, who stirs up division after you warn him twice. Don't have anything to do with that person. 
So Paul is consistently passionate about the churches disassociating themselves from unrepentant people, especially those who call themselves Christian. And later we're going to see that, the, that there's, a pro, there's an appropriate process for doing that. But for right now, let's just notice that the responsibility is on the church. The responsibility is put on the church, not merely the church's leaders. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is quite shocked by a situation that's going on in Corinth. There is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. And notably, Paul doesn't say, hey, you elders of the church of Corinth, come here. What are you doing? No, he calls out the church for not having done something about it. He calls out the church. So again, the authority in this area lies in, lies with, rather, the church. Later in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul expands this principle to not just be talking about idleness, but everything that he's written in the letter. Look at verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So anyone who disobeyed the apostles' teaching, which was tantamount to disobeying Christ, because these were Christ's apostles that he sent to be the foundation of the church, was to be taken note of and ostracized. And the hope of excluding them from the church and putting them to shame was that it would cause the brother to repent. That's why Paul tells them in verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the aim of church discipline is restoration. The aim of church discipline is restoration. But once again, note that, that this authority and discipline comes not from the pastors. It comes from the church. And that is why in practice at our church, at First Baptist Church of the Lakes, the pastors have not been the ones to excommunicate a person. That decision throughout our church's history, and it has happened here at the lakes, has always been up to the church. With that in mind, the first thing to do when you have issues in your church is to recognize that you are under your church's authority. And therefore, when somebody sins, that's not up to you to just immediately cut them off. That's not up to you. Because just as you are the member who has done, I'm sorry, just as you are under the church's government and authority, the member who did you wrong is also under the censures and the government of the church. And what that means is that you have to do things the right way. You have to do things the right way. There is a process given to the church by Christ, and it is a most wise process. All right? Have you ever been in a situation in which somebody in a church offended you, so you just decided to divide from that person, or you just left the church? We, we see this far too often. And the reality is that, that when a person simply leaves a church because there's conflict, 
That is not acknowledging the Christ-given authority of the church in this matter. Now, if you recognize that you are under your church's authority, which really is just being under the authority of Christ, who is the head of the church, then you will follow the process. And that brings us to our second action that you must take. So first, recognize that you're under your church's authority. Number two, follow Christ's process for unity. Follow Christ's process for unity. Moving on to paragraph 13 in chapter 26 of our confession. Paragraph 13. We read this long quote. No church members, upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. So let's say that you did what you were supposed to do. You admonished the idol. You corrected somebody who sinned against you, and let's say that failed. What this paragraph is saying is, don't go make a big stink about it to anyone who will listen. And it also says, don't just leave the church. Don't just leave. Instead, what you're supposed to do is wait on the Lord and follow his process. Jesus knows what he's doing. Amen? Jesus knows what he said, was doing when he told us what to do, so trust him in that. So let's take a look at this process, what I've called Christ's process for unity, in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus instructing his disciple, disciples rather, says this in verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 15 begins with that phrase, look, if your brother sins against you, uh, your Bible might have a footnote. The NET translation note argues that the oldest and the best manuscripts don't include the phrase against you. So it, they argue that the oldest and best just say if your brother sins. But in any case... There really is no reason that you wouldn't follow this same process, even if the same weren't, uh, sin weren't against you in particular. There's no reason you would shift the process just because the sin wasn't against you, unless it was a public sin, but that's something else. So suppose that you're out at a restaurant and, and you see a brother in the church clearly on a date with someone who's not his wife. Would you say, well, that sin wasn't against me? not going to do anything about that. No, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. Of course you should do something. And this process that the Savior outlines is good, whether the sin was against you or not. So if your brother sins, 
Here's what Jesus tells you to do. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If we had time, I would go around to each of your Bibles and double underline that phrase, between you and him alone. Circle it, highlight it, take a picture of it, post it on Instagram, okay? You and him alone. The Savior is emphatic throughout this whole process that you keep the situation as small as possible. He doesn't say, go tell your pastor if you see someone sin. (laughs) A huge amen from the pastor section. Amen. He doesn't say, go tell your D group about it when you're taking prayer requests. Has that happened? Is that why you're laughing? That's not good. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the right thing to do. This is basic. Because when people have problems with us, what do we want them to do? Do, they, do we want them talking to us, I'm rather, talking about us to other people behind our backs? No. When, when someone has a problem with you, you want them to go straight to you. So this is just good doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is basic. This is basic love. The goal of this conversation between you and him alone is restoration. Notice in the second half of verse 15, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. The goal is unity. The goal is not for you to get the last word in an argument. The goal is unity. The reason that you should confront someone for his sin is unity. You don't want to divide from him. So you go after the sin that would divide you as brothers. Well, what happens if that conversation doesn't work? Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In the latter part of that verse, Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 19.15, which with the law of our all-wise God made it so that two or three witnesses were needed in order to make a charge against somebody. And that was a, a wise way to protect somebody from being punished based on just one person's false witness. Again, we see the Savior giving the principle in church discipline that it should be kept as small as possible. One or two witnesses. Could you imagine if this step weren't here? Somebody could just confront you about your sin, and if you disagree, they just bring it up at the next church meeting. So thank God that there's a a step in between, right? This is a critical step of establishing a charge with one or two witnesses, and it's good and wise. It doesn't mean that these one or two witnesses needed to have witnessed the original offense. Sometimes that would be impossible. But the one or two witnesses serve as witnesses to the conversation to be able to confirm whether that person is actually in unrepentant sin or not. It might actually end up that it was a a misunderstanding. It was a preference issue. Maybe it was a conscience issue. And it helps to have witnesses to be able to help determine that. Now let's say that, that the one or two witnesses agree that, yes, this brother has sinned and he's still refusing to repent of it. What do we do then? 
first part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. We can no longer keep it small anymore. You tried once and twice to keep it as small as you could, but the brother won't repent, so you must tell it to the church. At First Baptist Church of the Lakes, and I'm guessing probably Emmanuel Baptist as well, as a practical step, these matters are usually brought before the pastors, before it just gets to the church as a whole. For at least the way we're set up, it's the pastors who lead out on what is brought before the whole church in our meetings together. But in any case, yes, now is the point where it needs to escalate. It needs to, it needs to escalate. But even then, notice that it's, it's not before the whole world. It doesn't go on NBC, right? The next step is not to take them to court. In fact, Paul repudiates that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of the issues in the church at Corinth was that they were suing each other left and right. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded, Paul writes. Basically, it's better to just suffer the offense than to have Christ's name dragged through the mud in the public square. Now, we need to caveat that a little bit because this concept has been used to bury crimes. And no, if, if you find out that a brother has committed murder or rape or some other sin that needs to be turned over to the state, then you need to press him to either turn himself in or you need to call the police yourself. You need to let the state do what God intended for the state to do. And yet even then, even as they are sitting in a jail cell, you can start working on the steps of reconciliation. So when we're talking about keeping it as small as possible, we're not talking about covering up crimes that need to be punished by the sword of the government. But even then, even in that situation, we should still try to keep it as small as possible, following the teaching of the Savior. Well, what if even after it's brought to the whole church, the brother still won't repent? Look at the second part of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put yourselves in the shoes of the audience to whom Christ is preaching. They're Jews. They do not yet have this full understanding of this concept of Gentile inclusion. And they abhor tax collectors because tax collectors are fellow Jews working for the Romans and they're skimming from the top to boot. So what would it have meant for them to consider such a man as a Gentile or a tax collector? It would have meant what Paul was saying in all those other passages. Have nothing to do with them. Don't associate with him. Avoid him. In Paul's instructions, he's presupposing that these other steps have already been taking, taken. He's talking about people who refuse to repent of their sins even when it's already brought before the whole church. It's implied in 1 Corinthians 5 because everyone in church knows about it. Such a person needs to be cast out with the hope that that shame will cause him to repent and come back to the fold. 
The goal, assuming that the person is an actual believer, is restoration. The goal is unity. There have been some who have been excommunicated from this church. But our attitude towards them is not, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Our hope is that they would repent and that they would come back and join us. We don't kick them out and say, stay out. We plead with them to repent of their sin and return. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. In light of the glorious reconciling gospel that Paul had laid out in the first half of Ephesians He now urges them in verse 1 of Ephesians 4 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. And then he describes what that looks like. Verses 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These passages, you may notice, I'm just pulling from the footnotes of the confession. These are the passages that the the writers of the confession are arguing support their position. And they, they cite this passage and they sit it next to what we just covered in Matthew 18. And I think they did that very wisely. Why? Because it can be easy to make church discipline a prideful and a divisive affair with Christians just constantly looking for opportunities to divide from somebody else. We see this all the time, especially on social media. It is astonishing how quickly keyboard warriors want to separate themselves from even guys like John Piper, John MacArthur, and Al Mohler over issues that, at the end of the day, they're secondary. They're secondary. Okay, John Piper is not reformed, but if you are reformed, it's probably in part because of John Piper. One thing that I love and miss about R.C. Sproul, our brother who's with the Lord, now a reformed Baptist, (laughs) (laughs) is that although he disagreed with all of these guys about at least one important thing, he counted them all as brothers and his friends and co-laborers in the gospel. But I see many people take the opposite approach. Now, is it wrong to disagree with these brothers? No. Is it wrong to even publicly challenge their public statements and actions? No. But are you going to do it with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with them in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? That is how we ought to deal with disagreements. We affirm against the keyboard warriors of the internet. Applying these verses to Matthew 18, even bringing a brother's fault to him ought to be done with humility and gentleness and patience, with love and forbearance, and with a genuine goal of maintaining unity. And every step of Matthew 18 should be done in the same spirit. No one should be prideful or harsh or impatient, or unloving. No one should be eager to divide from the sinner. Listen, 
Dividing from the sinner is something that we are willing to do, but it should always be as a last resort. Such is the Savior's process for unity. Are you doing this? When you see a brother sin, do you show him his fault? Of course, when I say brother, you know I'm saying brother or sister, right? It's just shorthand. But of course, this applies to men and women alike. This step of going one-on-one to the brother is probably the most missed step in the process of Matthew 18. Why? It's difficult. It's not easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. It's difficult, difficult, lemon-difficult, okay? It is, it is much easier to confront someone with somebody else. It's even easier to just not deal with a problem at all. It is hard work to confront somebody one-on-one. But if you would be faithful to Christ, the head of the church, you must be very strong and courageous and do step one. You need to do the hard work of showing the brother his fault in love. On the contrary, is it your habit to talk about people behind their back? Ask yourself that honestly. Is that you? Is that your habit? You like to talk about people behind their backs? That's not biblical. And at that point, that's not just sinning against your brother. That's sinning against your Lord. Don't talk about people behind their backs. Go to them one-on-one as Christ commands. And then from there, follow Christ's process. Brothers and sisters, it's a good one. It's a good process. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. And if we try to reinvent the wheel, we're actually disobeying the wheel maker. He knows what he's doing. He knows that this is the best process to both help people with their sin struggles and to maintain the unity of the church. And again, it's not enough to follow the steps simply by the letter of the law. It also needs to be done in the spirit of the law, which demands humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, and an eagerness to maintain the unity that Christ purchased with his blood. So when you have issues in your church, recognize that you are under the church's authority and follow Christ's process for unity. Now, what if that process fails? Well, let me say, first of all, that if it fails, it's not because the process is bad. It's because of human error. For example, the one or two witnesses might just get the situation totally wrong. The person is clearly in sin, but for some reason... They are just siding with the accused. That could happen because of blind spots due to friendships. It could happen because the accused is a respected person in the church, perhaps even a pastor. It could happen for a variety of reasons. So the confession points us to another option for recourse if this process does not work. And that brings us to point number three. Get outside help if that process fails. Get outside help if that process fails. The confession says this in paragraph 15 of chapter 26. In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned, or any one church, in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured, in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order, 
It is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter in difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Howbeit these messengers are assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so called or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. You probably understood all that, so we can move on. I'm just kidding. Let's summarize what's said there. If there is a point of unreconciled disagreement, or if there was an unsatisfactory church discipline result, then what the confession is arguing is that it's appropriate to get other churches involved to get their input on the matter. But these other churches, the confession argues, they don't have any actual authority over the church in question. You can tell that they're writing this against other forms of church government, right? The way that Baptists have understood church government from the scriptures, which we think is right, is that the local church is autonomous. There is no higher church order that has authority over the local church. All local churches report directly to Jesus Christ. There is no dotted line reporting to other organizations. Look at Acts 15. Acts 15. In this chapter, we're not going to be able to draw a one-to-one correlation for the for the reason that we don't have apostles anymore in the church. But we can draw some principles from Acts 15. So at the beginning of chapter 15, what we see is there are some men teaching that you need to be circumcised if you would be, uh, if you would be saved. If you're going to be saved, you need to be circumcised, this, these people were arguing. And the idea really here is that in order to become Christian, you need to become Jewish first. That's their argument. So we read in verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So Paul and Barnabas, uh, they face this this conflict, this uh, controversy is the word I'm looking for, and they were unable to resolve this matter on their own. So what did they do? They went to go get help. It seems as if that at least at this point in church history, Jerusalem was still kind of the mother church and the headquarters of the apostles, if you will. And then in verse 4, we read, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. This is a good thing to do. This is a great experience that we often have as pastors when we sit down together and we, we, we get to chat about each other's churches and what the Lord is doing in our respective churches. It's very encouraging. We could do more of that kind of thing. In verse 5, some of the Christians who were saved as Pharisees, and because they were saved as Pharisees, they continued to struggle with Phariseeism. They argue that you do need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And then we read in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This was a, really a doctrinal issue. And these church leaders got together to put their heads together. 
And this is a good thing to do. That's a good thing to do. Like I said yesterday, we ought not be so autonomous that we lose our Catholicity. Why wouldn't we try to think through doctrinal issues together with good brothers in the Lord from other churches? So they discussed the matter together, and James comes up with a solution. They were not going to have the Gentiles be circumcised. That's not uh, compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites Jews and Gentiles. But they would encourage the Gentiles from doing practices that would trouble their Jewish brothers. This would be a way to maintain unity in a church that has just combined two very different and previously hostile peoples. And then we read in verses 22 and 23, verses 22 and 23, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. So they put together a delegation to deliver the message in writing to the Gentile mission field. And then in verse 25, we see that they had come to one accord. In other words, they were unanimous. They had come to unanimous understanding together as leaders in the church. And that should mean something to us. So let's say, in a hypothetical situation, that the pastors of this church somehow adopted some sort of heresy. And, and you tried to resolve it within the local church, but you failed to resolve it within the, the local church. So you ask for other solid churches to help. You call up uh, Pastor Robert at Emmanuel Baptist Church. You call up Pastor Travis at Providence Reformed Church. You call up West Craig Road Church and others and, and ask them for help. And they come together, they discuss it, they discuss it, and they're unanimous that, yes, you're right, our pastors are in error. And if that's the case, that should mean something to us. These are godly men, elders of churches, filled with the Holy Spirit. We should take their input seriously if we're unable to resolve the issue within the local church. But again, that said, the confession also wants to make it clear that any decision made by such a meeting is not binding on a local church. Remember, the local church is autonomous. The church structure is Christ as the head, and below him are all of the local churches reporting directly to him. So if you're in that situation, and your pastors have gone off the theological deep end, for example, and you reached out to several other solid churches for help, and they got together and they discussed it, and they were unanimous in their agreement that your pastors are in fact heretics, and despite your best efforts, you're not able to remove these pastors, then I'd say, yeah, it's about time to leave that church. You went through the whole thing. But the point is, is that in this imaginary situation, it took a lot for you to leave a church. It took a lot. You went through, the, through Christ's process for unity following Matthew 18. You went to the elders directly about their strange doctrine. Next, you went to them again with one or two witnesses to make sure that you're not crazy and still the pastors don't repent. You bring it to the whole church and the church even agrees, yeah, this is not 
orthodox. This is heresy. And still the pastors don't repent. And you reached out for help from other churches who agreed with you, and still they don't repent. You went through all of that before you decided to leave. And that's a good thing. Because the Lord wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what should you do when you have issues in your church? Recognize that you are under your church's authority, follow Christ's process for unity, and get outside help if that process fails. There are really two main themes that that I want you to walk away with from this sermon. Purity and unity. Purity and unity. Do we want to have a pure church or do we want to have a united church? Yes. We want both of those things. We want both of those things. And it feels like it's impossible. We might think that if we speak the truth in love, if we contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered for all the saints, that we're just going to end up divided. That's inevitable that we might feel that way. On the other side of it, we might think that if we focus too much on unity, then we're going to compromise on the truth. But that's not necessarily the case. We can and we must strive for both the purity and the unity of our local church, your local churches. And the way that we do that is by following Christ's process for unity, which is working through sin issues, keeping them as small as possible, and by living together with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the church. What that means is that we will be quick to squash falsehood in the church. We will be diligent in mortifying sin in the church, but we will do those things with the intention of staying together as a church. But one of the things that that's going to take is that we need everyone's two feet inside the door. You know that old saying, one foot in and one foot out the door, right? We need everyone's feet inside the door. If we have a church where everyone is one foot in, one foot out, it's going to be very difficult to work through issues as a church. People will just leave when things get tough. But if everyone is committed to staying together, then we are going to work these issues out together. There's a brother here at church that I know that in his marriage, they do not use the D word, they call it. They do not say divorce in their household. It's not even a word. It doesn't exist for them. It's not an option in either of their minds. And because of that, there is a commitment that they're going to work through their problems no matter what it takes. Because they're in this thing for life. Imagine a church that is fully committed to working things out together no matter what. Standing on the truth and never compromising. That's the kind of church that Christ has commanded that we have. To our dear guests, uh, those who are attending this conference, but you don't attend this church regularly, you are uh, members of another church. If your church is a true church, meaning that they preach the gospel, the true gospel, and they have the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper being rightly administered, If you are part of a true church, don't leave your church. 
If you've you've visited our church and for some reason or another you like our church more than your church, but your church is a true church, don't leave your church. Stay at your church. Love your church. Fight for your church. And anyway, I promise you that if you start coming here because you're disgruntled with your former, your current church rather, you're eventually going to find something you don't like here and you're going to become disgruntled here. Remember, a church is a collection of saved sinners trying to do life together. There's always going to be something you won't like. But stay. Fight for purity. Fight for unity. Speak the truth in love and bear the fruit of the Spirit. I mentioned earlier uh, Becky and Jean, two members who have been members of this church since it was planted 32 years ago. I love that they're still members here. That's faithful membership. Pastor Rollo has been a pastor of this church for over 10 years. You don't recognize what a blessing that is. The average tenure of a pastor at a church is four years. He's been a pastor here for 10 years, and he has been a member of this church for longer than some of you have been alive. 22 years he's been a member here. That's awesome. You know, we have, we have, expe- yeah, well, he's a pastor. We have expectations of pastors to stick it out through thick and thin. Why don't we have the same expectation for members? We should. So conflict. Conflict is one of the things that you can expect when you're part of a local church. But the result of working through conflict and maintaining the purity and the unity of the church is a work of God. And it is a wonder to behold if you stick around to see it. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so thankful for your church. We're thankful, Lord, for the members here who have been faithful for many, many years who have gone through some of the terrible things that this church has gone through. We praise you for your faithfulness, knowing that this church has gone through controversy after controversy, and yet your people remain. We're thankful for that. We pray that you would give us all the fortitude and the love to stick it out together no matter what it takes, that we would follow your process for unity, O God, and that we will trust in you, that we would rest in you to do what you will do with your body. Bless us in the rest of our worship together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.